And the person interviewing me wrote those words down, looked up from his piece of paper and said to me, so do you think we're going to like that? Yeah, I, I do what I do today, Kathy, because of a fourth grade field trip. No credit to me, just me fumbling along with what I knew at the time and the dog being very forgiving of my mistakes. Ah, all the world's a stage. If only that were actually true. It might just be a little more respectful out there if it were. The truth is that the medium of theater is very particular. It's woefully inadequate to see theater done on TV or streamed or on film. It just is. Theater is about that experience. It's about history, context. It's about this ancient understanding of how things work. I mean, people show up, the lights go down, then there's an agreement. We watch, the actors tell. You sit in the dark together and experience. Good theater is about more than story. Good theater is about shining a light on where we've been, where we are, and perhaps where we're going next. Few theater companies have as deep a connection to depth and breadth of history than Soho Playhouse. They're an off-Broadway theater that sits literally in a spot made possible by Aaron Burr. Literally by Aaron Burr, but they're not in Hamilton or anything. Darren Lee Cole is the producing artistic director of Soho Playhouse, and in this Unleashed conversation, he speaks about their historic context and the exciting expansion to another historic spot, Las Vegas, Nevada. Darren shared his views on the place that theater plays in the world, the big move, and lessons about boundaries from a cat named Chris. I'm Kathy Brooks, and this is Talk Unleashed. Historic locations are not unfamiliar to Soho Playhouse. Your your location in New York is about as historic as a as a Manhattan building can be for a theater. I mean, yeah, well, it's actually built in 1826, right? And I used I mean, to when I work with young people, and I can see that that's not really landing on them. And they're in school. And I said, you understand, that's 40 years before the Civil War, right? And that, that gives them a little bit of a reality check. They're like, wow. And now do you find, especially with the presence of Hamilton in the world, um, I mean, there are so many historic things that I got reminded of, you know, in, in, the, in that musical, which I think was part of the point, right? It was reminding us exactly. of this player in history, uh, but the name Aaron Burr. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember it in childhood, there was that um, Got Milk commercial yeah. with the guy eating the sandwich and, like, and he was like, you could see he was an Aaron Burr fanatic and it was yeah. the radio the radio <laughs> contest. And he calls that. and they get one. he's like, because he didn't have any milk. Just like, got milk, the best ever. I used to love that spot, yeah. Yeah, so, but so, Aaron Burr had a place, uh, a place well, in your ancient history of your building in New York. Well, well yeah, actually, it, it all begins sort of with Aaron Burr. So, for those familiar with Manhattan, the the grit, the plot of land that is now would be uh, on the north Houston Street, on the south Canal Street, on the east McDougal, and on the west Greenwich Street, which at that time was the River's Edge. There's a lot of land which has to do with this story that is now west of Greenwich Street. That's landfill. 
all of that area, which is rather vast, was one estate called Richmond Hill. And that was Aaron Burr's estate. And also, for a time, famously, George Washington headquartered there in the Battle of Manhattan before they famously retreated to the north. And so, actually, the duel, the famous duel between Burr and Hamilton is the reason there is a Soho Playhouse, sort of. Uh, just that year, 1804, dueling had become illegal in New York. It just outlawed that year in New York. That's why they famously crossed the river directly across from this Richmond Hill in Weehawken, New Jersey. Because everything's legal in Jersey. Because anything goes anyway in (laughs) Jersey. And so on the famous bluff in Weehawken, right across from Manhattan and where Burr's estate was, Burr, of course, shoots and kills Hamilton and can't go back across the river because Hamilton's cronies will now have him arrested for murder. Uh, And a lot of people don't know this part of the story of Burr and Hamilton. You know, Burr then fled to the Carolinas and later went to Paris and didn't return to New York for a long, long time. So when it dawned on him when he was in the Carolinas that he wasn't going to be able to safely return to New York without being arrested for murder, he sold that land, Richmond Hill, to John Jacob Astor Sr., who was then working on his third fortune, which he was going to make in real estate. So John Jacob Astor is the one who levels Richmond Hill and all that land that is now west of Greenwich Street in Manhattan is landfill from Richmond Hill. And he developed row houses in the 1820s on this land on a now historic district in New York called the King Charlton Van Dam district. And this is the oldest federalist architecture remaining in Manhattan And one of these row houses in 1826 is 15 Van Damme Street. And that is indeed today the Soho Playhouse. Uh, Well, having grown up in Philadelphia, as I did, colonial history, early American history was was all around me. I, you know, I lived on the main line. So, you know, where, you know, the revolutionary soldiers go out to Valley Forge and General Wayne, the General Wayne Inn, which was famously said to be, you know, haunted and... You know, I remember as a kid going to Valley Forge on a, a horseback riding trip, and uh, it was winter. It was quite cold, and we were on horseback at the top of the bluff that kind of drops off, and there was a kind of a field with woods in the distance. It was winter, so it was all completely barren. And I, I can remember so clearly the tour guide saying, you know, imagine yeah. sitting here on horseback and seeing the scarlet coats coming through the trees because yeah, that's— I- because they were in Valley Forge and they were up on that bluff. They could see it happening. And you just get this sense of um, the sense of history. Yeah, I've been there and it really lands on you, doesn't yeah. it? Uh, and you can time travel a bit, uh, especially at Valley Forge and in the wintertime. To think of what happened there is, is quite remarkable, how people rallied themselves from that nadir. When you think about theater and you think about the context that theater provides for us as a people. It's the storytelling of a given point in time. It's contextual for where we are. It also shows us as we look back, you know, you can look at Mamet. You can look at Edward Albee also connected to the location of Soho Playhouse. You can Mm -hmm. look at these writers who over time, you know, write things that then we look back and we can see context, but it's also 
looking forward. So when you think about the work that you do with Soho Playhouse, there's so much creativity, the Fringe Festival and really bringing these new ideas. Talk to me a little bit about this idea of the leadership of theater, of theater as as a place for context and history for us as a society. Yeah, so it's kind of a two-part thing for me. The, the part that you're talking about, which is the context of what we get to do. And, and Off-Broadway being known for a sort of bravery and an unabashed approach to extending the edges of that context of what we can talk about and pursue and the ideas and concepts that are platformed Off-Broadway is just an amazing and wonderful, as far as I'm concerned, opportunity that's so broad. But the other half of the equation is equally important, and that's the function of how it happens, the function of the energy in the room itself, the format uh, that goes back to the Greeks of live people assembling together and coming together for the purpose of this and sort of the decorum and the rules of sitting there and holding your tongue for a while and focusing on what's on the stage, whether you agree or disagree, and having that live energy and human interaction uh, gives me great hope uh, for us, and especially at a time where we're politically um, myopic, perhaps, and not listening to one another. Uh, the theater sort of demands you listen. And the rules of the road are you're going to sit here and you're going to be quiet for a while and some ideas are going to unfold upon you and then there'll be lots of time uh, to discuss afterwards. And I think that's a big part of it too, is the way that we get to do it is as important as what we get to do. We've been through the greatest, longest intermission in the history of modern God, is it, over, is it over yet? And it seems to not, it seems every time we, we think that they're coming back on, the lights are coming back on, that the ghost light gets to be clicked on again and we get to step back from the room or we get to be spaced. And um, Enormously uh, difficult, obviously. So talk a little bit about what that means um, from the perspective of a creative entity. Um, you are someone who is deeply steeped in theater. I mean, you don't you don't learn with someone like John Hausman and not <laughs> and not have in the marrow of your bones well, and uh, the meaning <laughs> and lived and lived to tell about it. Congratulations! It's nice to see that you you made it through. Um, but in the marrow of your bones, I mean, this is something that clearly is. It's not a what you do; it's a who you are. It's a way of being. Yeah. It's a way of life. Yeah. So. How how have you navigated this time, and and how do you see the the medium evolving? I mean, to your point, nothing replaces the sitting in the dark alongside other people, having a shared experience. Yes. The feeling when the lights go down and the lights come up and the curtains part and you're transported to another place, and you you have that turning to the person next to you with the chuckle or turning with the tear or whatever it may be, that, that thing that connects us. How do you navigate something like that? Well, that's been the most difficult thing uh, for 
Soho Playhouse and artists like myself, as I just iterated before about this, how important the live experience is for us. And even though there's been lots of streaming and, you know, uh, other forums with which to broadcast your work, it's not the same. Uh, even the best stream play is on a format that's, that's not designed for the art form. And, and by the way, I'm, I'm a huge fan of film and television. And those that use that format well and have spent their lives dedicated to that format are really good at it. And that's why a play always seems, even though it has some positive elements, it always seems a bit clunky when it's not live. So the way we've survived it is we, we've been dark, unfortunately, quite a bit. But then we devised a new, because I do believe there's new ways to do live presentations and uh, socially distanced. And what we did was a huge new immersive work called Tammany Hall that goes back to some of the history of Tammany Hall and 15 Van Damme Street, our building. So instead of getting 200 people sitting shoulder to shoulder, as we normally would in our theater space, we spread it out over the whole 7,500 square feet of the five floors of the building and created an entirely immersive show so people could be masked and the actors could be unmasked. And if everybody was vaccinated and we sort of followed protocols, we, we figured out a new way to do that kind of show, which was a marvelous experience. But then Omicron hits and protocols change and we're always gonna err in our function on the side of caution. So if what, you know, and we're in an off-Broadway business with very tight budgets. So if like one actor gets COVID and they were in the show the night before, every, you're shut down. Everybody's got to, you know, isolate for however many days. So it's been very, very difficult to try to keep it afloat. Although I, I do see the corner being turned. Uh, I guess to do what we do naturally, you're an optimist by nature. And, you know, we've had a difficult time, but we're, we're far from done and don't feel licked and feel like this is the year that once we get the lights fully turned back on, we've got great programming lined up and can't wait to get going again. What does the word leadership mean to you? Either doing tough or unpopular things when, when the stream is flowing one way, being willing to go the other way for a greater good uh, with, with selflessness. And how, how did you come to that? I mean, you, um, you, know, you came to theater as a, as a kid in high yeah. school, as many, as many of us do. We're, I was that kid, to. yeah, doing Our Town and, you know, at Redwood High School and loving it and getting completely swept away by it all, yeah. And, you know, in, in, you know, leadership roles, you know, when you think about, you know, you were student body president, you know, so, you know, my leadership gosh, is not, you, you know, <laughs> yeah, I've done my, I've done my homework, but leadership is, um, you know, you hear leaders are born and not made and that there are, there yeah. are those who step into these roles with a bit more comfort, you know, leading productions in high school. Well, I, um, I will say, all of that. I, I think 
an inkling or a willingness or the, or the, the risk, fear, conquering part of leadership might be born, not made. But I will say for sure that I think good leaders are made. Once that first bridge is crossed, then experience. And in my case, I tell my staff all the time, um, you're fortunate, not that I'm smart, that I have been so dumb <laughs> before. Uh, but I think maybe there's an element of leadership, but willing to learn from all that egg on face, all, all those mistakes, and challenging myself to become a less arrogant and better leader, you know, throughout the course of my 40 years of doing this. I, I think, yeah, so I think, like, there is something about being born and willing to sort of get in the front of the line sort of business, but I think good leaders are made through experience and through trial and error and openness to change and, and morphing themselves. Do you recall your first uh, transformative shape shift, if you will? So, you know, born leader, taking some roles, and then we take some knocks along the way, right? You kind of charge forward up a hill and realize you're going headfirst into a wall. Oh, yeah. Uh, early on for me. So, like, first big show at junior high school. I'm 13 years old. We're doing Annie, Get Your Gun. And that yours truly at 13 is cast as Frank Butler uh, in Annie, Get Your Gun. And we rehearse like mad, and we're doing the show. And it's that classic story, literally, on the opening night, all my brothers and my family are in the front row, and my voice is changing it starts to croak and change on the opening night. So I like imagine a 13-year-old kid, the, first of all, the ridiculousness of a 13-year-old singing, I'm a bad, bad man, is worth its weight in gold anyway. But then with like the frog changing voice, I mean, so I push through the show and I get through it. And at the end of the show, I am humiliated. Everybody's laughing at me. And my brothers are giving me the business from the front row. So I go in the back classroom or wherever our little backstage was and I'm bawling. And Penny Jones, where, if she's still, wherever she is today, bless her, our, our instructor and our drama teacher came to me and said, of all the kids I've ever worked with, you worked so hard on this and I think like you really have a future in arts and this kind of thing. And I was like, how can you even say that? Didn't you just see what just happened? And she said something that was transformative and that I'll always remember. And she said, yeah, but you stuck with it. Like that happened early in the show and you went through the whole show like that and didn't let us down and finished. And she's like, that's, that's a real sign of strength then. So I always remember that. I always remember Penny Jones for teaching me that. It's funny how those lessons land in the in the strangest of times and what a great what a great lesson that that resilience and persistence yeah because that's certainly what it's taken to grow up in california and then move to new york at 21 and just go for it and you know way way more like everybody way more downs than ups especially at the beginning and but always like my voice wasn't changing, so. <laughs> Excelsior. <laughs> well, I, um, it, what's, what's 
interesting as I was um, uh, a conversation with Julie Wainwright, who was the the CEO of Pets.com back in the day, now CEO of The Real Real, um, was one of our very first episodes of the show. And um, we talked about, obviously, the colossal public, you know, she's like, look, you, I couldn't walk through an airport without seeing my face on the cover of a magazine yeah. or on the front page <laughs> of a paper. And you know what? When you have failed that colossally and that publicly, you kind of, nothing really matters. Like, what are you going to do to me? Embarrass me? I've been on the front page of the Wall Street yeah, Journal. I mean, really, yeah. it doesn't get worse. Than, like, really, it's... Yeah, don't get me wrong. While it's happening, it's not fun. <laughs> but there is an armor. There is a layer of, in survivors. There is a layer. Each survival experience is a layer of protection. It, it's a layer of strength. And humility that comes with it at the same time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that well, if you work in theater, you know, and do shows in front of people for your life, humility is not an issue. <laughs> they will, <laughs> they will keep you humble. Trust me. <laughs> you, or you just have to be so, such a megalomaniac that you're impervious to anything. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. There's, um, so I'm a, as you might gather, I'm a, a pretty avid performing arts goer and have yeah, been kind of getting since, that. since knee high to a grasshopper, <laughs> born and raised, like I said, in the suburbs of Philadelphia, went to Northwestern, spent a lot of time in New York, lived in San Francisco. And um, there's a difference between a performer who is performing for themselves and a performer who is there completely selflessly giving of themselves, you know, like opening the veins, here's me, you know, yeah. and at the end of the performance, like there's not you know, it's and there's almost. Uh, I have a very dear friend um, who is a brilliant um, Broadway performer, and I remember being backstage watching her during a performance once, and actually being so being close enough to really see her expression at her curtain call, and seeing the humility in it, the almost the surprise at the response she was getting. Yeah, that's you know that's a very interesting point you make there because for those that don't do it. It's a really complex moment, the curtain call. Because what you're watching is actually, so take away the performer and consider the human in the moment. It's a real transitional period of a few minutes or whatever of when you're coming out of what you're doing and back into your own skin. And then right at that really critical where you're emotionally very vulnerable and you're, you're all over the place and transitioning, and right at that, think about it, right at that moment, it's like you stand in front of hundreds and hundreds of people that are either showering you with positive or not so positive, you know, vibes, all cascading in this one instant in time. It, it's quite an amazing moment. I would imagine there's an adrenaline rush to it at the same oh. time. Well, that's the addictive, that's why people come back. Yeah, once you've been bitten, it's hard to, it's... It's, it's hard to get away from it. Dracula, which is a new idea I'm kind of working on, has got you. <laughs> You're going to need the blood. In the best, after that. <laughs> in the best of all possible ways. In the best of all possible ways. Yes. Yes. Now you're one of us. <laughs> all right. Let's let's talk a little bit about this um, Las Vegas shift. You know, when I when I was making my move here, so I've, I'm about a, just about nine years into my new home being battle. I'm not battle born, but I like to say I was um, 
battle baptized. So I moved here and and found a really remarkable place as you've spent time here. So you, you know, what a, a unique and singular place, uh, Las Vegas really can be. And so you've got this, um, community that is known for entertainment, lots of spangles and jazz hands and rhinestones and lots of like boobs and long legs and lots of skin and, Mm -hmm. you know, all of the spectacle of a large stage, a large, an arena show, a large scale production, a, um, showgirls and all of that. And, and historically had not really been a home of uh, the more erudite, shall we say, um, the more theatrical performance. Now, there is a lot of theater here. We have a lot of smaller, you know, I know you guys are connected to Majestic and a public fit and the theater that used to be called Cockroach. I know they changed their name. Vegas Theater Company now. Vegas Theater Company now and the Little Mm -hmm. Theater of Las Vegas. You know, so so it's not devoid of, they're just, until the Smith Center arrived, there was no, just no kind of, Physical yeah, and then there is the Smith Center, which is a Broadway roadhouse. Right. So, so, yeah, that's really interesting. So those theaters, companies you name would be the equivalency of our off-off uh, Broadway scene in New York. And a Smith Center would be a first-class production or Broadway roadhouse. You know, but those two things in New York, those two levels of theater, although everything is, of course relative to scale. There's a lot more of it in New York. But, you know, those two things combined, Broadway and off-off-Broadway, represent about 20%, maybe 25% total of shows and theatrical performances in New York. The rest, 80%, is in between those two things. And that's what Soho Playhouse does. And that's where there seems to be uh, an opening tile in the mosaic of the cultural landscape here. It feels like that two to 300 seat theater experience that, by the way, shows like at at uh, Vegas Theater Company and the Majestic and these other companies could grow into. You know, there's no middle theater and most theater is middle theater, middle house theater. All regional theater is what we call middle house theater. These theaters between 100 and 500 seats. And that's what we, uh, that's our expertise. That's what we really focus on. So it feels like a lot is happening here. And that's why I'm excited to bring Soho Playhouse here because uh, there's a lot going on already, which we love and, and, and we want to be a part of. And so we just want to add to that landscape uh, something that I think is unique and that the Las Vegas Valley is really ready for. You know, there's two and a half million people that are permanent residents in this valley now, and and that's growing. And the people I've known, my sister moved here 30 years ago. My mother retired here 20 years ago. And, you know, watching her raise her children here, my sister, uh, and go to the local schools and and be part of the local community, I know the community here. And I think the community here is really underestimated and really ready for a variety of different kinds of programs and shows and, you know, to add to what's already going on at these other theaters and the Smith Center. And like Edward Albee, you brought up, who's sort of the patron saint of Soho Playhouse. Uh, we use it as our motto. He's, he said it best. People go to Broadway to look. They come off Broadway to listen. 
And I thought that was just a perfect way to put the sense of, and by the way, that's in no way, shape or form pejorative to the Broadway experience. It's incredible. Like what's happening on Broadway now is bigger and better than ever. But there's definitely a different sensibility to coming and seeing something a little more intimately that's of the same caliber, this, you know, the same caliber artist doing it, where you're really up close and personal and having a much more intimate experience with the art itself. And I think there's room for that in Las Vegas. And that's what we want to bring. And then another huge component of this with restoring the Huntridge Theater, of course, is I'm a huge music fan. And to bring back the sort of glory of the Huntridge as a venue for music and, and bringing cool bands uh, that are famous and local and whatnot and make the music scene happen there again is something we're super excited about. So I want to come back to that um, community engagement, but I want to share a, a, an Edward Albee story with you that oh, I think awesome. you're going to find very <laughs> hilarious. So a uh, voracious reader as a child, um, grabbed books out of my parents' hands early and just started reading and reading, um, went through my whole bookshelf and found my my mom's old books in um, in a hall closet. And uh, among them were a number of different plays, including an Edward Albee collection, which at the time, you know, the, you know, mid seventies was a pretty, pretty good, good selection of plays. And, um, and I, my father belonged to this organization called Golden Slipper and they, every year they would do some sort of gala where they would honor, you know, someone in the arts, someone in sports, someone in media. And, you know, it was like one of those big fancy dinners and you go to the table and there's the honorees and all, you know, as one does at a gala. And, Edward Albee was one of the honorees, and I had just read Zoo Story. I mean, I was like 10 years old, but I had just read Zoo Story. Sorry to interrupt your story, but uh, just as a sidelight, which most people create as the play that invented off-Broadway. A bench, two actors, you're off to the races, but go ahead. (laughs) That's it. So we get to this, um, you know, award ceremony, and they've got Terry Bradshaw, some actor who I don't even remember who it was, and Edward Albee. And, you know, we're at this table, and I just kept looking up at him and staring at him and staring at him and staring at him. And, and I said to my mom, can I, go, can I go say hi? And she said, and so I go barreling up to the table. And I said, Mr. Albee, Mr. Albee, and he looked at me. And I said, I just have to tell you that I think Zoo Story is the best thing I've ever read. And he's looking around. I remember this so clear. He's looking around like, who put this kid up to yeah, doing yeah. this? Like, who's <laughs> who's pulling my leg? And I get into this, and he starts asking me questions, and we get into this whole conversation. And I just, of course, there was no selfie because that didn't happen. Like, you didn't really take photographic evidence of things no. like that at the time. Um, but I have an autograph from him somewhere from that moment. And I remember him saying, don't ever stop reading like you do. Yeah. Don't ever, don't ever stop loving stories the way that you do. I mean, that's why I, he's, that's why he's our patron saint. Cause yeah. we're trying. And by the way, theater is, is not stuck in the mud. I, I see theater really evolving and the way, and what it is, is we're still telling stories, but the way we tell those stories and the way we tell those stories live is evolving and emerging mm-hmm. And like our first uh, go at, which it exists all over the world, but our first go at fully narratively led immersive theater with Tammany Hall was an amazing eye opener 
at how many different ways this can happen. So I want to touch on the community aspect that you brought up, this idea of being part of a community, bringing a beautiful old theater back to life, reviving it. Um, I used to live in the neighborhood that is immediately behind the theater in the Huntridge neighborhood. Uh, I'm kind of downtown adjacent now. I'm over in the Rancho Oki sort of area. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, so I'm just my, kind of... My mom's pop, over pop. there. So I'm, I'm literally due west of where I was by about by about eight minutes. Um, but this beautiful old theater, and there's very much a community, this idea of a place, not only where you go to consume content where you go to sit, but right. a place, uh, from what I understand of the plans you have, that it is a very interactive space where people can come and they can engage and there are classes and there are workshops and it sounds like there's going to be some sort of cafe space where people can hang out. My guess is there'll be playwrights and auth you know authors yeah. and artists and patrons all kind of in the same space. What does community mean to you and what role do you see Soho Playhouse being able to play in as part of the fabric? You use mosaic tile, I use, you can use quilting, right. you can go whatever metaphor you you care to Yeah, there's use. hundreds. Uh, essentially everything. Community means everything to us. Uh, think of, again, think about the group of people that, this, that does what I do. We've definitely decided to do an ensemble art form. So even from its very core, the, the concept is ensemble related. It's interrelated. It's, it's the most exciting thing is doing this with other people. So shows themselves are, uh, theater shows themselves are ensemble creations between a team of people. Even solo shows, by the way, are ensemble art creations between the designers, the director, the stage management, all the offstage crew, whoever's on the stage. So the whole thing is, is stems from that. And then the ability to extrapolate that and be part of a community, a, a larger community. Um, art has always been an essential portion to a healthy and functioning community. The, the cultural, uh, shared cultural experiences have, are invaluable. They're, they're a part of every successful community. And we take that very seriously. And, and, but we also realize that that's a role in the community, not the entire uh, T of roles. And that's why we interface really well uh, as an arts organization with the greater community is because we, wa we want to be part of what helps make the whole thing function. And that's like what you say, the dream of that is to create uh, space where people feel comfortable and, and feel like they can discourse and share ideas and explore artistic visions and expressions. And, you know, we only have, we have one requirement to anybody who comes to the theater or takes a class. And we ask only one thing of you, be brave. Uh, you know, we want people to be brave. We want people to be brave in life. And we think that arts is a way that help people with their, their bravery. Uh, think about how brave you have to be to get in front of people and make an artistic expression. It's what terrifies people 
I read one study, it used to be like more than cancer is to, to speak or have to do something. So conquering fears and doing it in front of other people creates a bond with those people. And once you have that bond, you're, you're, you're instinctually going to look out for that person. You're going to want to protect that person. And now we're building community. Now, mm. now we're building something bigger than the art itself and that hopefully inspires. And we, again, we don't pretend it's the magic potion or anything, but we think it can be a real contributing factor to a force for good. So many good nuggets and, and so much truth. I mean, we, um, it's like the answer is, you know, what's the solution? The yes. It's all the parts. It's all the parts. 70s kids, you know, love is the answer is what we were taught. And it's not, that's not inaccurate, actually. It turns out out that's true. Turns out that's true. Don't make me sing that whole song. I promise I won't. I won't. I I promise I won't. We can do that after. I'll stop the recording. So you grew up in, uh, on the peninsula in California, grew up in Northern. Uh, Well, actually not, I grew up sort of, again, split. Uh, my first 10 years, uh, I'm in Southern California, mostly in the San Fernando Valley. And then when I'm 10 years old, I moved up to Marin County, north of San Francisco, mm-hmm. and did school and high school there, and then went back to USC in LA. And then at 21, headed off to the big lights of Broadway. How about pets, pets in your life? Was there a childhood pet or did you have dogs or cats or hamsters or goldfish or? Well, you'll be very happy knowing your other pursuits to hear this. We, we are a big, loving pet family. And pets have always been a huge part of our lives when I think about it now and my emotional life. I mean, I remember all my pets from Shotzi, our first German short hair, uh, dog, and then Misty, our Gordon Setter, when I was a teenager who was, when I was first doing plays and frustrated, and Misty was my confidant. And uh, yeah, and then I had cats. Unfortunately, now I travel so much that I'm currently, for one of the few times in my life, petless, and I feel it. But I've been on the road with a lot with this fringe series that we do and I'm traveling the world. And what I won't do is leave a pet alone at home in a New York City tiny apartment. I just feel that's not right. So uh, hopefully I'll settle down enough to pet up again soon. But yes, I think animals serve a massively important function in our society. So when you talk about this emotional landscape, kind of the emotional foundation and the role that pets played, when you think back, is there a moment or a particular scene that you recall or particular instance that is particularly impactful to you? Of the many, I'm sure there are many, but when you really recall. Well, actually, yeah, it's interesting because they're not all flattering to ourselves. And sometimes we learn uh, rougher lessons, but we learn them. And I remember with uh, my cat, Chris, who was named after my favorite character in any play I've ever done, which was a play called Killer Joe. 
and the protagonist was an 18-year-old kid that, like, if there was a leader of the gang who couldn't shoot straight, this kid is the leader. And his name was Chris Smith, and Chris was a, a rescue cat that I took. And, uh, and I thought I was like the cat whisperer. And because I've always gotten along amazingly well and just had this energy with animals in general. And then I went right up to this cat and they were looking for somebody to rescue it. And I was playing hero and I went right up and I grabbed him and he gave me the biggest swipe. It was the first time I had a, a, a rejection, like anger, like all of that. And it was so uh, stunning and humiliating. I was like, oh no, what did I? And then they explained to me and showed me what serious trouble this cat was in, uh, including terrible, terrible things, cigarette burns on the port. And they were like, yeah, this isn't actually one of the rescues. So long story short, of course, we got Chris to a vet and, and got Chris and Chris and I were bonded uh, for life after that. What I'm hearing is boundaries, you know, and and yeah, I got meeting a lot. meeting someone where meeting someone where they are as opposed to where we want them to be. There's the lesson, and I I was so uh, assumptive, and boy did I find out wrongly so, and so that that stuck with me. When you think about that from the perspective of theater, you know, obviously we have a we have a script and there's a plot, and there's a story, and of course we hope that people will like it and appreciate it. But when you think about presenting a work or presenting theater or theater concept to an audience, and you think about it through that lens of meeting people where they are, especially with the Fringe Festival, right? So you're, in some cases, you're finding pieces that are way out in left field, or they kind of off the reservation is the phrase sometimes, or whatever it is, but yeah. they kind of uh, other than they go against the pale, whatever it is, um, what's that experience like for you And you, when you think about how do you approach that? Well, that's why I'm amazingly well-suited for my job. I, I mean, I'm a freak for theater, I learned over my life. I am so into it, it's crazy. Like, I go to fringe festivals, and I'm one of those people that I think last time I was in Edinburgh, I did 58 shows in 17 days. And I literally, every show, I sit there, and I'm that guy It's like, you have to lose me. You don't have to get me on the train. You don't have to get me into the ship. You're like, you have to outright lose me. Like, you have to kick me off the ride <laughs> for me not to, to find something that I'm going to dig about your show. So I, because I, again, I love all the, the bravery of it. I love all the risk. I love, and mind you, when you're going to all these fringe shows, you know, a couple of hundred shows a year, 80% of them minimum are definitely not going to be your cup of tea. Uh, but for me, it's like any, um, prospector or like the, like the West, maybe frontiersman in me, it's panning for gold. And once you hit that nugget and you find a show and you know you can help this show and help bring this show and these artists to the next level for them, 
and really help inspire them and give them some of the tools that they don't have yet. It's, it's a thrill uh, and it's my drug and it's my, it's my pan of gold. So I'm always out there mining. I love that. And, and an apt metaphor, although it would be silver here. I'm sorry. It would be silver <laughs> in the know, silver state in and all that. Yeah, right. And I was in right, Northern right. California, so you have to. Right, right. I'm so we'll go with it. We'll go with the gold metaphor. And I don't think that silver shows up in water. I think you actually really do have to mine for it. It's a whole. It's a whole thing. Yeah. It's a whole thing. Well, I, Darren, I couldn't. I couldn't be more delighted that you guys are here. When the news came through about the Huntridge, I mean, we were all, and by we, I mean the my cluster of friends, we, you know, go to the Smith Center and all. And Myron is a, Myron is a friend. Myron was one of the first episodes of the show as well. He's a, I mean, he I'm talks a big about, you know. admirer of what Myron has put together over there. Yeah. Big. He talks, he, you know, he does what he does because of a fourth grade field trip. Yeah, I think I've heard that story. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> fourth grade. You might have actually heard it on my podcast. He's maybe, like, yeah, I do what I, I do what I do because of a fourth grade field trip. It was exactly what he said. And the mohair seats. So you go into the Smith Center and he he started talking. He was talking to me about the experience that he had in the theater in that on that fourth grade trip. And he literally, we were sitting and as he was talking about the mohair, he was he was kind of moving his hands on the on the uh, like on the arm of the chair, and he was literally transporting himself back. He was totally and he, there. The, <laughs> the minute he said mohair, I kind of tilted my head to look at him. I'm like, Myron, the Smith Center. The seats are mohair. He's like, yeah. I'm thrilled with uh, the renaissance of what what we're uh, what we're going to be able to to see here and experience here, and uh, love that Soho Playhouse is get getting to be part of the story of what, what Las Vegas gets to become in this next chapter. And we've done a lot of programs already in the schools. And so, you know, and again, back to my family history here. So I know there's interest and a large amount of a sophisticated audience that's out there for us. And we also realize, and that's why I really appreciate you having us on Kathy. It, it really, truly, in my world, it takes a, a village. It takes the community. This is Talk Unleashed. Sit tight. We'll be back right after this. What does it mean to be a generous performer? I heard that phrase once when I was talking with a friend who's been an actor for years. Theater, film, TV. She was relating to me the experience she'd had with some really talented and very well-known names. All of them super talented. Like Emmy, Oscar, Tony kind of talented. But there was a difference. She said some of them showed up with all that talent and sucked all the air out of the room. She said performing with them was more like stepping back while they chewed on the scenery. There were others, though, whose performances were entirely about giving. A marrow-of-the-bone kind of altruistic giving that was on, certainly on one level was about embodying their character and doing their job. And it was equally about creating the space for others to do the same. When the performance began, whether in front of a live audience or on a set, that energy was turned outward into the embodiment of the performance. Both methods worked. Both were good performances. The energy put out and the experience of the people around them, though, 
really different. I started thinking, what if all of us started doing the same thing? politicians, business executives, what if we all started doing the same thing, not, not acting? Well, we all know that politicians are doing that anyway. I'm talking about the altruistic giving thing. This idea of giving everything and pointing it outward. Huh. Might be nice. Soho Playhouse is going to be getting their new space underway really soon. And in the meantime, you can check out the things they are doing right now at SohoPlayhouseLV.com. And don't forget to drop a review of this episode or other episodes. And make sure to spread the word. I mean, look, friends don't let friends miss good podcasts. Podcasts.